Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Elizabeth Beisel, three-time Olympian in the sport of swimming. She reflects on the ups and downs of her decorated Olympic career and the key role that her mental health played throughout. Welcome, Elizabeth. I'm very excited to be here today. Thanks for having me, Sasha. Absolutely. So you're one of these rare athletes who's had a super long Olympic career, going to three Olympic Games. And from what I've read, you've learned so much about yourself along the journey. And I'd love to go back and start at the beginning of that journey to seven-year-old Elizabeth, who was somehow beating the 15-year-old boys at swim practices. Can you take me back to that time and explain how that happened? Yeah, it was crazy. I think for me, especially in swimming, I had a natural feel for the water. And that's kind of a term that we use as swimmers. You either have it or you don't. Um, And I was lucky enough to have it. And I was just, I had that competitive edge that was always inside of me. Um, It was never something that I really worked on or practiced. I just had it. And I remember, you know, being in practice one particular day and we were doing a set of 50s and it was me and all the teenage boys and I'm like seven years old. And all I wanted to do was beat the boys and the boys hated it. I don't blame them, but I knew that was just like what I wanted to do. I wanted to always be the best regardless of who I was racing. And I remember after that set, I had beat a few of the guys and one guy actually punched the wall, was like screaming four letter words, like kind of directed at me, but It was just like, I didn't really let it phase me. I was like, listen, I'm doing my thing. I'm taking care of myself. And that's the beauty of being a swimmer. It's, it's a very individual sport. You control what you do in your own lane. But yeah, that was kind of the start of me being very competitive and not caring who I was about who I was racing. Obviously you were very talented and you, you really came onto the, the swimming stage pretty young. You made the national team at the age of 13, which you said was a, a pretty shocking moment for you. And you didn't quite know how to interact with your idols, right? The people that you were on the swimming team with were on posters plastered all over your childhood bedroom. W- what was that like? Yeah, it was extremely intimidating. I felt like a deer in headlights the entire time. I mean, 13-year-old Elizabeth, you know, I'm still in middle school. I have made the national team. I'm one of the best turner backstrokers in the world. And Now I kind of have to leave my middle school self behind and become this Team USA member. And I'm on a team with Michael Phelps and Natalie Coughlin and all of these people that I literally have posters of in my room. And now I'm on the same level as them. And so it it really took me for a loop. I was scared to talk to everybody because I didn't really know how to interact with people that were that old. And then on top of that, they were my idols. And so all I wanted to do was get pictures with them or autographs of theirs. And that was kind of like the faux pas thing to do because I'm on their level now. Um, but it was a really interesting journey for me. I had a lot of big brothers and big big sisters looking out for me, Natalie Coughlin being one of them, Colin Jones, um, Ryan Lochte. And so I, I made some really special friendships through that because I had a lot of people looking out for me, which I was super grateful for. But I definitely didn't have many close friends because I didn't really know how to relate to them. And I was scared of them, to be honest. And when you're a 13-year-old girl and you are going through all the rites of passage of, of a young kid, wanting to hang out with your friends, figuring out who you are, you're suddenly thrust into the spotlight and you have all this attention on you and the Olympics are coming up. And, and I imagine that that forces you to 
to grow up much more quickly with that that burden, um, those expectations on your shoulders, right, of what it could mean to make an Olympic team and kind of what your dreams were. First of all, how did you balance trying to be a normal 13-year-old kid with your Olympic dream? And and how do you think the pressure uh, facing that so young and so early in your career changed your outlook or helped you develop as a person? Yeah, I, I definitely matured quickly because of my dreams and because I was accelerated so early as an athlete. But for me, I think I was so lucky to have parents and coaches that really instilled a sense of normalcy within my entire life. And swimming wasn't always everything. Was it was it everything to me? And I loved it. Absolutely. But, you know, I had other things going on and and that was, I made sure I went to homecoming. I made sure that I had friends outside of the pool and hung out with people outside of the pool. And that was really, really important for me. And then I played violin and piano and those were my kind of out of the pool outlets um, that I had that if practice wasn't good, I could still go home and play music. And I think balance, especially as an elite athlete, is super important. But for me, you know, those dreams of becoming an Olympian at such a young age did force me to grow up really fast. And I was kind of lucky because I never spoke about my swimming that much amongst my school friends and my teachers. My teachers knew that I was always traveling for swimming and leaving for weeks at a time for world championships or nationals or whatever it was. But I think they kind of assumed it was for like juniors. Um, that it wasn't like an actual, like, no, I'm at the real world championships. I'm racing people that are 30 years old and I'm 14. So I think when I finally made the Olympic team, when I was 15, I was a sophomore in high school. My teachers kind of had this coming to Jesus moment and they were like, oh, okay. So now I get why she's leaving for weeks at a time. You know, this, this girl is legit. And it's not like I never had any support from my teachers or my classmates or anything. They were always extremely supportive, letting me get my work done in advance or letting me, letting me make it up when I got back from a trip. But I think once I went to the Olympics, that, that really solidified what I was doing and how much work I was putting into it outside of the classroom that maybe they weren't aware of um, beforehand. I read that at one point you Googled the odds of becoming a U.S. Olympian and you found that they were just 0.003%, but... For you, that was a positive. It was a possibility. It was a chance. And I really would love to know how old you were, where you were in your career, and where that attitude came from. Yeah, so this is actually a really cool story. So I was eight years old, and I had just come home from a clinic. And for those of you that don't know what a clinic is, you kind of you go to a pool, an Olympian comes to the pool, they show you their medals. They take photos, they get into the water with you. Um, and it's a really, really awesome experience. And so the clinician at that clinic, her name was Amanda Beard. And she was fresh off the 2000 Sydney Olympics and had absolutely crushed it, got a, multiple medals. And she was kind of like my idol at that point. So I go to that clinic and she said to all of us while we were in the pool, she said, at least one of you in this pool will be an Olympian one day. And that stuck with me like glue. And so I went home, I dialed up the computer, you know, you had to plug it in back then. And I Googled the odds of becoming a U.S. Olympian. And like you said, those results came up 0.003%. And I remember my parents coming up behind me, like before they even knew it, I Googled and I could just, I turned around and I kind of saw the, just the color drain from their face because they were like, oh God, this poor girl is setting herself up for failure. Like those odds are not in her favor. Um, and I remember I turned around to them and I was like, mom, 
dad, there's a chance. And I was so excited that that was actually a possibility because one, my idol, Amanda Beard said it was, and two, Google said it was. So why not me? Um, And the coolest part about that story was eight years later, when I made my first Olympic team in 2008, they announced at the swimming trials, the Olympic team in alphabetical order and Beard is right before Beisel. And I remember standing behind Amanda Beard and thinking, oh my goodness, eight years ago, you told me, and you didn't even know it was me, that I would be an Olympian one day. And here I am standing behind you on the same Olympic team. And it's just incredible how full circle life can be sometimes. And she didn't even know it, but she was a huge part of that Olympic dream becoming a reality for me. Um, And so I think that's, it's such a cool story. I kind of get the chills every time thinking about it because what are the odds? But the odds are low, obviously, but it's, it's cool because it happened. It's a super cool story. And that brings us to Beijing in 2008. And this was your your first Olympic Games. And just setting up for that, the Olympic trials uh, where you ultimately made the team, you completely unexpectedly broke a world record. I know that that was a big day for you because it it changed the level of expectations. It changed the weight um, that you were carrying and and wondering if if it was repeatable. And I'm not sure if I have all my facts right. Please correct me if I don't. But can you take us back to the Olympic trials and what it was like gearing up really for the beginning of your Olympic career? Yeah. So just to let you know, it was the Olympic trials record and then the fastest time in the world that year. So close enough, but definitely put me on the map. Def, it came out of nowhere. I think I dropped six or seven seconds, which at that level is unheard of. And so for me going into that race, it was the 400 IM, it was day one. And that wasn't really the event that I was expected to make the team in. The tuner backstroke, which was a few days later, was kind of my baby, my best event. And so I go into the prelims of this 400 IM that was supposed to be a warm-up race, honestly, and end up breaking that Olympic trials record and going the fastest time in the world. And then as a 15-year-old, that put a lot of pressure on me because I wasn't necessarily ready for it. I was ready for it in the Turner backstroke a few days later, but this kind of just added another level of that. And I remember spending that entire afternoon crying because I was so nervous. You know, normally I spent that time during prelims and finals resting, taking a nap, eating lunch. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I was just thinking about the what ifs, you know, I'm not ready to embarrass myself in front of thousands of people. Like, what if I don't make the team? Am I a failure? All of these doubts that flood through all of our minds before a really big race or competition or event. Um, And I remember going to the pool that night and I just wasn't myself. I ended up throwing up. I was so nervous. I was crying. I had an anxiety attack. And the one thing that calmed me was my coach called over one of his really good friends. And that friend happened to be a 1992 Olympic gold medalist. And that friend, his name was Nelson Diebel, sat down next to me about 20 minutes before my race. And he pulls an Olympic gold medal out of his pocket. And he says, if you do not believe in yourself tonight, you will never win one of these. And he put it back in his pocket and he just walked away. And I was kind of like in shock. I was like, what just happened? Oh my gosh. Um, But it was also that epiphany moment for me where I was like, you know what? He's so right. If I do not have the ability to believe in myself and to get my mindset into the right place. 
I'm never going to make an Olympic team. I'm never going to break any records. I'm never going to win any medals. So I need to do it now. This is where it happens. And 20 minutes later, I dove into that pool knowing that I was going to make an Olympic team. And that was the most confident I've ever raced before in my life. And I tell that story so often because I didn't go and swim an extra 10,000 yards to get fast all of a sudden. You know, that's not what boosted my confidence. What changed was my mindset. And I was able to really wrap my head around the fact that you can do all of the hours of work in the pool or in the gym or whatever it is, but it's not going to pay off if you're standing up behind the blocks or you're standing up for your event and you're doubting yourself. Like your comp, your, your entire race is going to emulate that. So for me, it was a huge learning moment in my life knowing, Hey, I've got this, I've done the work. I need to believe in myself. And that works. And for an aspiring competitor, whether it be at the Olympic games or another arena, is it the lack of negative chatter or is it actually the existence of, of positive direction. I know personally dealing with injuries at my, uh, my, at my second Olympics, you know, there were so many little voices in my head that the fear, the what if, I'm not ready, I'm not prepared. And it was really the decision that that had to be turned off. And it wasn't necessarily that there was like the positive bravado, super confident person underneath that, but it was the ability to turn off the voices that didn't serve me. And and I'd love to know what that looks like for you. I think every athlete handles it very differently. And I think it's super helpful for athletes who, who are competing today. Yeah. So one of the things that I always used as a tool before my race, and I was somebody that got extremely nervous. Like I said, I would, I would throw up, I would be so nervous sometimes or cry. And the one skill that I really honed in on was accepting my nerves and thinking as though I was looking at them through a flashlight. And if I'm shining that flashlight on only the nerves, that's exactly what my body language is going to mirror. And so if I was able to take that flashlight off of the nerves and the what ifs and the doubts and shine it on the reasons why I deserved to succeed and be fast and break my own PR, that's kind of the way that I used that mentality. That was the way I was able to shut those negative thoughts off like you did. And turn to the positive things. And it's, trust me, it's not easy. Like it's way easier said than done. Um, Any athlete can say and tell you that, but my best races of my career were when I turned that flashlight onto the positives and allowed myself to accept that I deserved to be there, regardless of who I was racing, who was next to me, what I had done previously. It was that letting go moment of, hey, I've done the work. It's been honest. And I've I've had these come like these moments where I want to change from negative to positive, but I know in my heart that I didn't do the work. And that's a totally different story. We also need to be very honest with ourselves. But the times that I know that I've done the work and there's no stone left unturned, those are my best performances. Um, so that flashlight tool was a really helpful, helpful skill that I learned throughout my career. That just reminds me how emblematic sports are of life, but under a pressure cooker. So everything you face is just at a hundred times the magnitude, you know, when competing at Olympic games versus how you navigate through life. And I think that's such a, such a good example that what you focus on life is what you magnify and what you make bigger and what becomes your reality. And something that we'll definitely talk about later when we touch upon 
mental health and mindset. But I wanted to shift from here to what it's like being the favorite. Because over, you know, you started as this 15-year-old upstart and you ended up qualifying for two events in Beijing in 2008. That experience, that those games, you weren't the favorite, but you I know you learned a lot from those games. So I would love for you maybe to take take me through the steps of what it was like leaving experiencing and leaving your first Olympic Games and then ultimately getting to the, a place where you were suddenly the favorite in, in your field? Yeah, so 2008 was a huge learning experience for me. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm the youngest on the team. I'm 15. I'm still at the point in my career where the people I'm on Team USA with are still my idols. You know, I haven't been around long enough. I still look up to these people and I, I still do today. Um, but I was, I wasn't exposed to them enough to really see them as just humans or my fellow teammates. Um, they were my heroes at that point. And so that entire Olympic games revolved around me trying to be like my heroes. And I realized that that is not always the best thing. You know, I remember watching Natalie Coughlin and Michael Phelps like a hawk. I wanted to do every single thing that they were doing because they were the best. And that's great. And yes, of course, some things are going to work for me, but not everything that they do is going to be successful for me. So yes, I had an amazing Olympic Games. I placed fourth and fifth in my two events as a 15-year-old. That's awesome. But who knows, maybe I could have been third and fourth if I had kind of figured out that, hey, maybe what Michael does isn't exactly right for you sometimes. Um, So it was a huge learning experience in that way because I figured out what worked and what didn't work for me. Um, But I loved those Olympics because it gave me the experience and the knowledge that I needed to head into my next Olympic Games. I knew what to expect. I mean, the Olympics are like nothing I've ever been to. And for me, coming off of world championships the year before, you know, Team USA as a swimmer, you're on a five-star vacation at world championships. You're staying in a five-star hotel. You have the best of the best. And then you kind of get to the Olympics and it's the village and you get a sheet, you get a pillow and a bathroom that you share with eight other people. And that was not what I expected. I thought I was going to be living large, like the Ritz that we stayed in, in Australia the year before. Um, so it was really, really nice to be exposed to that and know that, okay, Hey, the Olympics is a totally different beast. There's no way you can prepare for it except for just going with an open mind and accepting it for what it is. Um, and, you know, even those Olympics, it's it's crazy to think about, you know, I keep talking about Michael because um, he is a dear friend to me, but, you know, thinking about what he did at those Olympics, our finals were in the morning. And for most athletes, when we're competing finals, it's at night. So because of broadcasting, we switched prelims to the night, finals to the next morning. We're pretty much living off of McDonald's because that was the one thing that we kind of felt like was familiar. Um, And he's winning eight gold medals off of a completely different schedule, a one pillow twin bed, and he's like six foot six. Um, So it's just amazing what athletes can do when it matters. And, you know, we put so much emphasis and pressure on all of those little things being right. And we need to prepare for things to not be right in order to be our best because the Olympics is exactly that. You have no idea what to expect. You need to be ready to roll with the punches whenever they come and just be able to go with the flow. And I think Michael is just a true testament to being able to do that under pressure. Um, 
But yeah, Beijing was a huge learning experience for me personally and definitely set me up for success leading into the following two Olympics that I went to. It just reminds me how much as athletes we prepare, how much we try to control every detail, the wind, the the snack we eat, just the tennis shoes or just make everything kind of perfect, consistent, familiar. And then you go into an Olympic or Paralympic Games and and you you can't control the time that you're going to be competing. The Zamboni has broken and they couldn't make the ice. Someone's lace breaks and all of a sudden you're waiting an extra 30 minutes and you were ready five minutes ago. So it's being an elite athlete is, you know, all about trying to control these tiny details and then totally rolling with whatever comes your way and being comfortable with the discomfort. And I think your description of, of Beijing was just so emblematic of that. But jumping to London, so you're, you're going in in 2012 as a favorite. And it's wonderful, but it's also dealing with extra pressure, having something to lose, having the world watching you, the expectations of Team USA. W- what is that like? And what are the thoughts that are going through your your mind when you're at those games and, and how, how are you dealing with it in real time? Yeah, it's it's definitely difficult. I am somebody that loves to race as the hunter, not the hunted. And so in 2012, when I kind of became the hunted in the 400 IM, it was a huge transition for me mentally. Physically, I can still do those times. I'm I'm ready physically, but mentally, I'm not used to this. And how do I cope with all of the headlines that I read that are saying Elizabeth Beisel is the favorite. And then I go down this spiral of, oh my gosh, like the entire state of Rhode Island is watching me. All of my teammates at Florida are watching me. NBC is highlighting me as the favorite. Can I do this? I don't know. Am I going to be a failure if I don't? And it is this spiral of doubts and fears and negative thoughts that kind of take over. And so for me, I think the best thing that I ever did in 2012 was I shut my phone off for the three or four days before my race, um, before that 400 AM. I did not look at a single social media post. I didn't care what anybody was writing about me. I felt bad because I I knew like all my friends were texting me, good luck, we're going to be watching, but that it's overwhelming. And I think a lot of Olympians can relate to that where Everybody just wants to support you and you're so grateful for that, but it is overwhelming at times. So I shut my phone off. I completely zoned out and just focused that flashlight on, listen, Elizabeth, you're physically ready to do this. This is you at your peak. You need to take advantage of this now. And so going into that 400 IM, despite being the hunted, I probably felt the most confident that I had ever felt because... I was able to block out that exterior noise that sometimes we let seep in too much. Um, And as you know, I was so nervous, you know, you know, when you're at your peak and you know, when it's time to show up. And that was the most nervous I've ever been for a race. um, That final of that 400 IM, but I knew that that was my time to shine and I was going to take advantage of it as much as I could. There's so much to reflect and think about within the performance, right, when you're actually competing, and then certainly in the years to follow. And I know that I personally have images seared into my mind of different moments during my competitive career, faces, personal thoughts. But then again, the years after that you reflect and the the what if and how did this happen and what's serendipity and luck and what the randomness and how much was 
based on what I was thinking or where I was looking. And and I would love to know when you were competing in London and you you were favored for gold, but ended up winning silver in one of your races. And what was that emotional process like for you? Did the thoughts come in while you were still racing? Did they come in after? And how have you thought about it since that moment? Yeah, so that 400 IM was an emotional roller coaster. I remember speaking with my coach about 20 minutes before the race. And for those of you listening, I'll put it in layman's terms. My coach said, if you are in first after the first 75% of the race, so at the 300 of the 400, if you touch that wall first, you are winning gold. And I believed in that because I had all the training that I needed under my belt. I knew I could finish the race better than anybody in that field, endurance-wise, And so I made it my point in that race to touch third at the 300 so that I could win gold. And I remember swimming that entire first 300 and I get to that 300 wall and I'm first and I'm first by a lot. I'm first by almost a body length and a half. And in swimming, that's a ton. Um, And I remember touching at that 300 thinking, I am about to make my biggest dream come true. Like I'm about to become an Olympic gold medalist. And I push off that turn to start my last 100 of the 400. And about 15 to 20 meters into that final 100, I saw a splash out of the corner of my eye. And I was like, no way. No way somebody is catching up to me right now. Um, And sure enough, that splash kept getting closer and closer. And eventually, that splash just completely passed me. Um, And it was the Chinese swimmer in the lane next to me named Yi Shi Wen. And she just absolutely obliterated me that last 100. And I went from, oh my gosh, I'm about to win an Olympic gold medal to what, what is happening? Am I dying? Did the training not work? Am I choking? Um, how fast is she going? How fast am I going? All right. I guess I'll settle for silver. Um, it, it was, and it happened all so quickly within a matter of 10, 15 seconds. Um, and so I remember I obviously end up finishing second. So I win the silver, um, Yishi Wen breaks the world record, beats me by at least two seconds. Um, and in swimming, that's a lot. And I remember being obviously excited. I have won my first Olympic individual medal. Like that is the coolest feeling ever. You get USA on the podium, but then also a little bit of confusion. Like what just happened? You know, I was supposed to win this. I believed I could win this. My coach believed I could win this. And, you know, what went, what went wrong? And so it, it was a roller coaster for sure. And it's, it's never been something that I'm ever ashamed of, you know, not being an Olympic gold medalist. Like that first medal to me is the most important thing in my life um, in terms of like possessions, I guess. But it was really hard because then the media kind of spend it like, oh, how does it feel to go in as the favorite? But now you won silver instead. And then there was, there was a lot of talk around Yishi Wen and doping and all of these other external factors that I had no idea about any of it. I didn't care. I had done the best that I had done that day. And that was all that mattered. And that's the one thing that I try to remind myself. Um, if I think about had I been an Olympic gold medalist, it doesn't matter because I went my best time that day I was just off the Amer- the American record and I put Team USA on the podium and that was my one job to do. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a crazy like hour of my life, but definitely something that I look back on and I'm, I'm so proud of myself for. 
You bring up a good distinction or an important distinction between the metal that you get, the color of the metal that you get, and the performance that you give. And knowing that you trained the best that you could and that you performed the best that you could gives you, I think, some kind of sense of peace that that's what you're capable of and and you you accomplish that on an on a Olympic stage. But at the same time, it, it can be a very different experience, perhaps, if you don't give the performance that you are hoping for and you don't get the color medal that you're hoping for. It certainly is magnified by by the media. And I think personally, I won a silver medal in 2006. Thankfully, it was before the, the time of social media. So I wasn't as bombarded with constant breaking news banners and the expectations in real time on my phone. But the messaging was loud and clear. It's like, oh, you you lost the gold. Like, how devastated are you? And that was the repeated messaging for a year, two years. And so that, I think that really becomes part of your psyche. And and so again, I, I always find it very interesting the way that we process an event in the moment and then the way that, you know, perhaps we remember it and how it it shapes us because you kept competing after this. I believe you competed in one more event, but then you competed for another four years. In context, that's a 12-year Olympic career and, and you know nobody does that and it's it's so hard to stay motivated and stay competitive for one Olympics let alone three I know I've just said a lot there but I, I guess <laughs> I want to ask you going home from from London what was your your mental state what were you thinking what were your goals what did London leave you with yeah, London, first of all, Sasha, I love everything you just said because I can relate to it so much. Um, I totally understand where you're coming from. But yeah, leaving London, I was obviously on top of the world, like felt so good. I won medals in the two races that I swam. And, you know, one of them was very unexpected in the Turner backstroke. So it was kind of like a, a fun surprise that I got to have happen. Um but for me going home, I was hungry. I wanted that gold medal more than anything. Um, that was kind of the last box that I needed to tick off. Um, if I were going to retire in my mind, what I believe to be successful. Um, and we all set our own bars of success and expectations and stuff like that. But for me, I wanted to be an Olympic gold medalist. And so I left London definitely on a high, but definitely having like a chip on my shoulder and wanting a little bit more. And I think that is what carried me through the next four years of that quad um, was that I had one more thing to do. There was, there was another box on my list that I needed to check off. And it was, you know, it was crazy because I didn't, when I, when you're in the moment, you know that you're doing something great, right? Like you're swimming at the Olympics or you're, you're skating at the Olympics, whatever it is, you're on the highest level that there is. But it's kind of normal to you. Um, at least it was to me. Like, I was just doing what I always did. I was just swimming fast and having fun. And I happened to be doing it at the Olympics. And in Rhode Island, where I'm from, you know, it's a small state. We have maybe one or two Olympians every single Olympics. And so I remember coming home from those Olympics with that chip on my shoulder, like not ready to celebrate. I'm ready to get back to work. And, you know, there's a parade. There's a homecoming thing. There's all of these interviews. Everywhere I go, I'm getting a free meal. And it was, it was kind of crazy because people were celebrating where I was like, no, like, I, yeah, that was great, but I'm ready to go back to work. Um, 
And so it is interesting how hard we are on ourselves when I kind of wish I had taken a step back and appreciated what I did um, because it is amazing. You know, I, I don't swim competitively anymore. And I think, oh my gosh, I was second and third in the world. That's amazing. But at the time it was not good enough. Um, so definitely headed into that, that third quad into 2016, knowing that I still had something to prove and I wanted that gold medal and that it, I still wasn't at the level that I wanted to be at just yet. It's true, right? You said it's 0.003% just to be a U.S. Olympian. I wonder what the stat is on being an Olympic medalist or a two-time Olympic medalist. Right? Like, Definitely like less. Like you were. <laughs> and, and perhaps it's something in our wiring that enables us to endure and put up with all the rigors and mental stress of training and expectations and the sacrifice, which is that the other side of it is this lack of satisfaction if it's not perfection, right? If it's not right. the ultimate, it's always... And, and I find this carries in my life post-sport that everyone's like, oh, you know, you did a great job or you got an A on this paper, 98%. I was like, where's that 2%? What? Mm-hmm. Where's the 100%? That, that's what I was going for. And and so it's, it's very interesting to transition as an athlete that has a very narrow, defined view of of what success is, which we know it's, it's a gold medal, it's on an Olympic podium, to what is success in life. And the times that we're tested or where we're competing, the stage is not as clear and it's it's continuous. So I, I think that's really interesting. But I, I want to ask a little bit about the the mental side and the role that your coach played, because I think I remember a story that you previously shared that he said that swimming will test you physically, but it's generally your mind that will fail you first. So, so give us some context for that moment and how that hit you, because I think that is very, very a powerful statement and very well put. Yeah. So that was from my college coach, Greg Troy, and he's kind of like the Yoda of swimming. Um, he's been around forever. He's coached dozens of Olympians and he, he is truly amazing because he knows that when you're swimming at that level or any sport at an Olympic level, that is your everything. You are devoting your entire self to that. But he also puts a huge emphasis on not just the physical side, but the mental side as well. So we're seeing a sports psych. We're, we're checking up on our mental health all the time because, I mean, I remember even back in 2008 when I was first on the Olympic team, there was no psychologist. There were, you know, it was still a little bit taboo to talk about. Um, but as I progressed through the sport and time went on, it became more of a prevalent topic, especially in the swimming world, at least. Um, and so I remember coach Troy, I, I think I was in a rut of training and I wanted to quit. And he kind of said that quote to me, he was like, listen, you have put in so much work, so much time, so much effort into the sport. You cannot leave all of that behind because of your mental health right now. You need to stop swimming. You need to take care of your mental health and then get back into the water. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many thousands of yards you're swimming. Like This is kind of like I said earlier, if you're not stepping up behind those blocks with a healthy mind, that healthy body does nothing for you. Um, and so for me, especially on, on the later half of my career, mental health was a huge component into me succeeding as an athlete because I, I'm more experienced. I have more pressure on my shoulders because it's now not a surprise if I make an Olympic team. It's expected of me. 
Um, and that's a huge transition to go to and it's pressure filled. And I, I did deal with a lot of mental health issues like every athlete does. Um, and so I think for coach Troy to really put that into perspective for me and actually value my mental health just as much, if not more than my physical health, um, was really important and played to the fact that I was able to be on national teams for 12 years in a row. Um, which kind of is unheard of, especially for a woman in swimming. And I, I credit him so much for for valuing that side of the sport because sometimes it's not, or at least as much as it should be. And if you're comfortable, can you share a little bit about what those rough patches were like, the lack of motivation, and ultimately what you did to find joy or more motivation and be able to come back to the pool? Because I think everyone deals with burnout in some part of their life. And a lot of times we feel like admitting it is weakness or failing. Well, when ultimately the break, the vacation, the reassessing where you are is what you need to move forward. And so I think any stories that we can hear of like what that looks like are really, really helpful for, for people competing today. Yeah. So not to jump ahead on our timeline, um, but in 2016, um, I went to the Olympics and I'll spoil alert, I did not win a gold medal. Um, I didn't win a single medal. And that was a really, really hard thing for me to swallow. And I was still under contract with my sponsors until the end of 2017. So I had a year and a half more of competing. And I left those Olympics very sour. I hated the sport. I hated the fact that I failed. I didn't want to swim. I couldn't look at a pool. I couldn't put on a swimsuit. And I literally stopped swimming and working out for eight months. I just mentally was so hurt and almost depressed about my swimming um, that I that I couldn't face it. I, I truly could not even look at a pool. Um, and it was about eight months into my very extended break. And I got an email from Speedo, who was one of my sponsors at the time. And they very politely said, hey, Elizabeth, you know, like, we get you're going through a tough time, but we are paying you to race and show up to these meets, and you haven't done so since the Olympics. Um, and you are expected to compete in a month or two at World Championship Trials. So maybe it's time to get back into the water. And that was kind of like the kick in the butt that I needed. And I was like, all right, you know what, I'm going to give this a try. I don't know if I'm ready, but I'm going to give it a try. And I was back living um, in Rhode Island. So I went back to swim with my club coach. His name was Chuck. And I remember showing up to the first practice and Chuck was, he looked at me and he said, Elizabeth, you get out whenever you need to. You do not have to finish this whole practice. If you swim for three minutes and you're done, that's fine. All I care about is that you are happy and you want to be here. And I think because he opened the door like that for me to welcome you know, walk back into the sport, it made me feel like there was no pressure. I could kind of just go with how I felt. And that was the first time that I had that freedom because normally it was like, I need to show up for four hours a day, grind, get as much out of it as I can and leave. Otherwise I wasn't doing enough. And here I was given a second chance to fall back in love with the sport that I once loved so much. And so, you know, the first practice I was in for 30 minutes and then the next week of practice, I was in for an hour. And soon enough, I couldn't wait to go back to the pool. 
And I truly believe that that break away from the sport allowed me to physically heal, but more importantly, mentally heal and really appreciate the sport for what it was. And, you know, with two months of training and finally being happy again in the pool, I made the world championship team. And for me, that was one of the biggest victories because I didn't expect to make the team. I was like, all of you other athletes have been training for 10 months out of the year. And here I am six to eight weeks of training under my belt, kind of just showing up because I had to. Um, but in reality, that just turned into me falling back in love with the sport and making a world championship team. And so I, I do think that accepting whatever the feelings that you have are there and whether they're good or bad, it's it's a huge thing to accept. And it's great to have a break from a sport because it does give you that hindsight and the ability to appreciate what you have as an athlete, if you're not doing it every single day. It, and it's obviously, it's, it's different for every athlete and you've had multiple experiences, incredible highs and lows. And I think because of that, and because you've competed over such a long stretch of time, you got to know yourself in a way that perhaps you didn't at the beginning of your career, but at the end of your career, you're dealing with the type of mortality and a, a death of a competitive Olympic career as you're still competing. And uh, something really struck me that you you once said, which was you had to deal with still competing, still wanting to compete, but knowing that your best performances, your your best athletic potential was behind you. And I think that has to be so hard to face at such a young age. The things that maybe come easily to you and that you're, you know, that you really excel at become more and more difficult. And then you're not as fast as you were. And then the 15-year-olds are better than you. And and what is that like? I think many of us, we retire before that moment. We don't stick it out. Because of that, perhaps we leave we leave something on the table. But I think, you know, you're in a unique uh, position to really reflect on that. Yeah, I think you know, for me, I knew after London, that was probably the fastest that I was going to go. And although I never was going faster, I was still going the same times. Um, But it is hard after so many years of getting faster and faster and faster and climbing that ladder. And then all of a sudden you are just in a perpetual plateau. You do not move at all. And I was in that plateau for a few years and then that plateau, I started to get slower. Um, And so that was when it really sunk in that I am not swimming anymore to go personal best times. Those days are behind me. I am now swimming because I just absolutely genuinely love it. I love representing Team USA. I love my teammates. I love the process of working hard every day. And, you know, for me, it became all right, I'm going to go to the pool today and I'm going to work as hard as I can to stay the same. And that's insanity. But for me at the end of the career, at at the end of my career, that's kind of what it came down to that. If I wanted to be on team USA, I had to work the hardest I've ever worked with knowing that I wasn't going to get any faster. Being able to take those eight months away from the sport was, was really incredible for me and it it allowed me to accept that my best swimming was behind me and that I am no longer doing this to maybe necessarily be the best, but I'm doing this because I love it. My body still can do it. And that's an incredible thing. And I don't want to take that for granted. Um, but yeah, it is, it is a tough thing to swallow when you know that 
the best is behind you, but you're still going to keep truck trucking along. Um, but I'm very glad I did it. One other thing I think many people are curious about, swimmers are in the pool for four or five hours a day staring at a black line underwater. And on top of all the pressures of competing and injuries and trying to make an Olympic team, what is it like mentally to be staring at that black line every day for hours a day? What are you thinking? What is that world like? Yeah, that world underwater... For a lot of us, it's kind of our therapy. For me, it was my alone time. It was, I did a lot of thinking about literally anything and everything. But at the end of the day, it was where I was the most honest with myself. And I think that was a really special thing that I I don't have anymore. You know, I'm not swimming four hours a day. I don't have that four hours of quote unquote therapy um, to go to. But it was a place where I could push my limits, be honest with those limits and make myself better, but it is definitely a lonely sport. And so I think that's why teammates are so important, especially in an individual sport like swimming, where you may only have 20 seconds on a wall every few minutes, but if you're spending those 20 seconds on the wall with somebody that's going to encourage you and be positive and cheer you on, that's going to make a whole world of difference. And so for me, towards the end of my career, Maybe I wasn't pushing my teammates as much as I could because I physically wasn't there anymore, but I made sure that I was going to be that person that was always positive, always showing up because I wanted to be there, not that I had not because I had to be there. But yes, it's it is like your therapy session, um, but it, it like I said, it is definitely lonely and you have a lot of time to overthink things, which isn't always the best thing. Um, but you do you are able to work through some problems that you have, I guess. You are one of the few athletes who I have the privilege to speak with that has transitioned and has put such a tenured and incredible career behind you. And I think that's a really important moment to kind of pause and reflect upon because we pay attention to the athletes that are up and coming, who we expect to win gold at the next games. And when athletes decide to retire, we, you know, the, the spotlight often goes out. And I think there is a ton going on personally, and most of that isn't being shared. And so I want to know what it was like for you when you realized you needed to reinvent yourself and that you were no longer Elizabeth the swimmer and maybe trying to figure out what made you happy and and what identity looked like outside of the pool for you. Yeah, the transition, I think, for any athlete, um, regardless of ability, is a hard one because you're you're mourning a death in some sense of somebody that you used to be and you're no longer them. And for me, I knew that if I kind of let that break go too long, if I gave myself too much time to figure it out, I would go crazy. And so I left the sport, luckily, and not everybody can say this, I left it on amazing terms. I left absolutely loving swimming. And I went to school for journalism and I knew that I was always comfortable around the camera and I love people and I love their stories. And so I kind of knew that I wanted to go into that journalism world. I wasn't sure what yet, but I really didn't take a breath once I was done swimming. Um, I didn't really miss a beat, but there are times where I kind of wish I did sit and reflect more on what my swimming career was and what it gave me because 
oftentimes, you know, I'll be sitting outside or going on a walk and I'll think, wow, like I really was amazing. And I don't think we say that enough about ourselves. And it is kind of cool to think about the things that I did because I didn't appreciate them at the time. And now that I've had that hindsight 2020 vision, I can now really appreciate what I did. Um, but the transition for me, I'm somebody that needed to get back right up on the horse and get going. And and it wasn't easy. You know, I was saying yes to everything. You know, a local swim meet, hey, do you need a commentator? Hey, do you need somebody to announce the races? I'll do it for free. I just want the experience. And, you know, the more times that I did that, I would get referrals and, you know, would meet people. And that has kind of turned into the career that I have now. And it's fun. I get to go to SECs and NCAAs and Olympic trials and the Olympics and do all these big meets. But it's been, you know, a four-year, five-year process of just saying yes to everything, everything and nothing. And so it is a hard transition. Um, I think it's something athletes maybe need some guidance for and with. But for me, I was lucky. I was one of the lucky ones to know that I kind of wanted to go into this field. Um, and that made the transition easier. Um, but it's certainly not that easy for everybody. One other thing that I I loved that you said, that the most important part of sports is the journey and how you actually get from being a kid with a dream to an Olympic medalist to inevitably leaving the sport. And I think there's so much focus on performance and medals that I think it's really refreshing to kind of look at an Olympic career as a journey. And I just love your thoughts. Yeah, I I think, you know, almost not winning that Olympic gold medal allowed me to have that perspective because although I never accomplished my biggest dream per se, I am able to look back and have absolutely no regrets on the journey that got me there. And it's okay that I'm not an Olympic gold medalist. Not everybody is going to even go to the Olympics, but the lessons and the experiences that I've learned and had through swimming have shaped me into the person that I am today. And that's that's something I would never trade any loss for um, or any win for as well. And so for me, I, I'm lucky that, you know, I kind of didn't win that medal because I am able to have that perspective. And my last question for you, something I ask all my guests is, what would your Olympic or Paralympic moment in life be? Oh, that's so good. Um, you know, honestly, I think just feeling fulfilled and happy in anything that I do. And I know that's like such a cliche response, but I want my health. I, I want to be happy in whatever I'm doing. And that doesn't mean that I need to be the best sports reporter in the world. You know, if I'm enjoying it and I'm loving it and I get to travel and have a family, I think, honestly, that's that's exactly what I would want. I would be very happy with that. That would be my Olympic moment for life. I love that. That, that is so well put. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I love I loved your answers. I love what we got to talk about. And I, I know that our audience will as well. So thank you. Thank you so much, Sasha. You're amazing. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.